Car. I need a Bible. Um, one second. <laughs> Not a good start if I don't have my Bible here with me. If you would please turn with me to the book of Galatians. We will be in chapter 3. And I hope my goal is to cover verses 27 through 29. But the bulk of our time will be spent studying verse 28. Now I know uh, Pastor Joel touched on it last week. And um, as we were talking at staff meeting, um, Josh thought it would be best to cover this verse a little bit more in depth, and so my hope is to do that and to help you. Um, so I want you to know that this verse, we're going to be especially spending our time in verse 28. Verse 28 is the bulk of our passage, uh, and it's what I want to talk to you guys about. And I want you guys to understand that it is a really important passage because it has great implications for how we understand not only manhood and womanhood, but also it will affect whether you'll be faithful to live in the way that God created you. Okay, so this really matters. This has practical, real implications to your life today. Not just as a man or as a woman, but as a follower of Christ. And so uh, I do want to preface and start by saying that um, if, you know, uh, some of these things are new to you, you know, our church has been preaching on this for a while, but if some of these things are new to you and you're just like, this is the first time I've heard of this or this is just different than what I'm used to, uh, would you just not dismiss it so quickly? And would you actually walk with us and actually walk through scripture and see what scripture says. And I'm not going to answer all questions. I'm not going to answer every objection. Um, but I do hope that you will at least be willing to ask questions and say, hey, you know, why is this the case? Why, do you, why did you say that? All right. A lot of it, because of our time and the nature of our limit and how much, you know, I, I don't want to keep you here for two hours. I used to think that I couldn't speak for more than 30 minutes. You guys know I'm capable of that now. And so I don't want to keep you here for two hours. We're limited on time. We have to be out of here by noon. And so I want to be able to give you enough help, but it's not going to be exhaustive, okay? And so uh, would you just walk with us, be patient, and ask as many questions as you want. We would love to walk with you, all right? So uh, let's pray. Most gracious Father, we thank you that we have your word, Lord, and that your word is sufficient, and your word is good and useful, and useful for rebuking, correcting, for training in righteousness, Lord, that we would be men of God that are complete. Father, may we... Look to your word this morning. Would you help me to be clear? Lord, there's a lot of errors. There's a lot of distractions in our world. And help me not to get too sidetracked. Help me not to say things that wouldn't actually be beneficial and uplifting. But Lord, that uh, your word would actually come through and that your spirit would do a good work in us to help us to live as you called us and as you made us as men and women. Uh, so Father, we ask for your help. We ask that you would be go before us. Make this clear in our minds. And give us faith to believe it, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's read. <clears throat> Galatians 3, 27-28. For as many, as, of you, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, according to promise. Now, if we're going to understand what verse 28 means, 
we have to start with the context, right? We have to start in verse 27. You can't just take a verse out of context and say whatever you want it to mean. So we have to start with verse 27 because it sets the stage for verse 28. When you study a passage, you don't just read it alone. You actually read it. what's around it. What's the flow, the logic of the argument? So let's look at verse 27 to start out with. 27 reads, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's a key phrase there have put on Christ, all right? What does that mean? Somebody asked you, what does it mean that you have put on Christ? Let me read you a quote from Calvin, John Calvin. This is how he explains it, and I think he puts it very well. And it reads, he says, Paul, so he, Paul, employs the metaphor of a garment when he says that the Galatians have put on Christ. But he means that they are so closely united to him that in the presence of God, they bear the name in character of Christ, and are viewed in him rather than in themselves. All right, this is incredible. Don't miss this just because you're just used to this, and you've grown up hearing this, you're familiar with this concept. This really is amazing. When you put on Christ, when you have put on Christ by faith, your Heavenly Father sees Christ's righteousness, sees Christ's work, in you, he sees his work, his accomplishment in you when you stand before him. All right, and that is completely different than what you deserve, right? You don't stand before God condemned and rejected. If you have faith in Christ as your Savior, it's like you put on a garment and now you stand and you have taken on Christ's righteousness on your own because it has been imputed unto you. God now sees you in Christ. All right? And that's amazing. That is amazing. That should never go beyond you. And the question is, who is this true for? Who is this true for? Anyone. Anyone who would humbly come with faith that Christ is their only hope to be made right with God. Regardless of their past or their current status or their condition, this is an offer to all that if you stand in Christ, you have put on his righteousness. That's the point, all right? What we're going to see in verse 8. This is an offer for everyone, regardless of condition. So as we turn to verse 28, okay, remember, what is Paul talking about in his logic? He's, don't, do not lose sight of the fact he's talking about your standing with God in mind. So we get to verse 28, and it reads, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. All right? No Jew, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. All right, if you text that, take this verse out of context, okay? And this verse has been used wrongly to explain and justify many things that are not right, especially when it comes to the responsibilities between men and women. So this is a danger to all of us, and so I want you to take it seriously. What do people want it to mean? What people want it to mean out of context is that there's no such thing. There's no difference between men and women anymore. They would say that these categories now, because we've been redeemed, they're irrelevant, both so socially and practically. All right, they would say that just like we don't have slavery anymore, we shouldn't have limits, right, to what men and women can do, because there's no difference. There's neither male and female. We're all one. 
People want this passage to mean that there is now no differences in the responsibilities that men and women are to carry. Here's how a liberal theologian put it in my study this week. And I think it's a she. She says, Galatians 3.28 is quite clear. So she says, Galatians 3.28 is quite clear. There's little doubt about the point Paul is making. In Christ, we are all the same. We are equal with one another. How you understand this passage really matters. Okay? And what you think this passage means and the implications of this passage really affect how you're going to live before God. Because if there's no difference between men and women and their responsibilities, and men and women are equal in every way, then men and women can do whatever they want, right? There's no limits. There's no restrictions, no responsibilities on them. That means that men can do whatever women can do, and women can do whatever men can do, right? And then apply that to the family and apply that to the church, and they would say there's no difference. They would say women can do whatever men can do, right? Women can lead in the church. They would say women can preach and serve as pastors and elders, right? It says it's right here in the text, not so quick, right? Not so quick. Let's study it together. And by the way, if you go down this train, this logic, this also opens the door for things like homosexuality and transgenderism to creep into the church. Okay, why do I say that? If you remove God's distinctions, you will end up in all sorts of errors. And we want to we want to uphold the distinctions that God has created and reject the distinctions that God has not created, all right? So um, how it came, you know, how I heard first about this and how it came to a lot of us is one of the most actually damaging books on this topic and actually had a real effect in this town, specifically in Bloomington, uh, is the book, and this book is called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, Exploring the Hermeneutics of Cultural Analysis. I'm going to say a lot of big words. Hopefully you can follow along. I'll try to explain it. But what this book does is it argues for a new and a novel way of reading your Bible. Okay? The book argues that now there's a framework, a new framework, or a hermeneutic. Okay, well, hermeneutic, what is a hermeneutic? It's just a, a way of um, interpreting the Bible, a framework for how to look and understand your scriptures. Okay? And this framework, this hermeneutic is called the redemption movement, redemptive movement hermeneutic. Okay, so it's a lot of big words, right? But in essence, what this framework does is try to understand the Bible and that it claims that you can go beyond what the Bible says and you can actually analyze the direction and the trajectory of the teachings that are found in Scripture. Okay, so they would say that there's um, things written in Scripture and there's a progress and a trajectory and we can see that and discern that and see where it is leading us to, all right? They would say that we can discern the Spirit to which the redemptive movement points us to, a move that they would say is towards greater righteousness and greater justice. All of it to try to figure out what is cultural and what's not in the Bible, right? Now, this is hard. I'm giving you, this is what it is. It's hard to understand without an example. So let me walk you through an example. Maybe that'll make it a little bit clearer. <clears throat> slavery. Okay, so you look at slavery, and obviously it's relevant because of our text. There's neither, you know, free nor slave. Here's the trajectory what you would use, right? Slavery in pagan cultures was ruthless, right? You just kill your slave if you want to, no consequences. Now, you get to the Old Testament. You get to the law. 
When God gave the law through Moses, now there were actual protections for slaves. And then, as we turn to the New Testament, we see that slaves could be included in the people of God and that masters were actually supposed to treat their servants with respect. All right, so this is what you see, right? You see this slavery, this topic of slavery is really bad. God gave some protections. God gave more protections. So you see that there's a trajectory, right? Towards eventually, slavery should be abolished. There's a progression, okay? And now you take this approach of reading your Bible, okay? There's things that it points to that go beyond Scripture, and now you take it now to the role of men and women. So it follows like this, especially for women, right? The, the argument goes, women in many ways in ancient cultures were seen inferior as to men, okay? And they would claim that the Old Testament treats lowly, women lowly compared to men. So an example would be, you know, men could marry as many women as they wanted to, okay? And they could divorce them whenever they wanted to, you know, even in the Old Testament. But then, right, so that's where you kind of begin. Then you get to the New Testament, and you see that women are treated with more, more dignity, right? Now you have marriage, and it's upheld as uh, one man and one woman, okay? So there's protections for the woman. Marriage is exalted as a union between one man and one woman. There are Women are now in, more included in the people of God to the point where we actually see them participating in the life of the church. Okay, all of it pointing to what? They would say it doesn't quite get to, but it is all pointing towards ultimately full inclusion of women in the church and the family where there's no difference between men and women, removing any distinctions or responsibilities. And they would say because Galatians 3.28 tells us that we're all equal. Now, there's a lot of problems with this framework, a lot of problems to think through, and I can't address all the issues that we have because this is not a lecture, okay? This is not a lecture on this. I want to help you, but I do also want to protect you. And so let me give you some big picture problems. I have three, two that we're not really going to address very, two, we're going to address very quickly, one that we're going to spend a little bit more time on. So three big picture problems. One, and probably the most obvious one, is that it misses Christ. It completely misses Christ as the climax of redemptive history. All right, look in your Bibles with me. We're in 328, but now look at 4.4. Chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. All right, all of Scripture has been pointing to this moment, the climax of all of redemptive history is Jesus and his arrival and his work and his death and his resurrection. The diff- a lot of the difference that you see between the Old and the New Testament, you have to see through the lens of what Jesus has done, not through so many other criteria or categories. But the author completely misses the fact that Christ is at the center of this. He is the climax of redemptive history. Number two, one of the problems is it undermines the authority of Scripture completely. Who gets to decide where, the cra- where, where, there are tra- where, where there are trajectories and who gets to decide how far these trajectories go? We do, right? Because the Bible's silent on it. You can go beyond Scripture. And so it makes man the judge of redemptive history. And you should already think about, that's a problem. I shouldn't be trusted to make these decisions. Number three. It fails to understand the beauty of God's creation. What does every egalitarian and feminist framework 
of trying to read the Bible, what are they trying to do? They're trying to undo what God set forth in creation. All right? They have a misunderstanding of the goodness of God's creation and his design, and they're trying to approve upon what God has started. But what they fail to see is that in the order of creation and how God made the world, with the responsibilities given to men and to women that are different, these distinctions are good and are proper. They're inherent to us, foundational to how God made us. Someone said, Redemption does not undo the distinctions of sex at creation. Redemption makes creation better and destroys the curse. So it makes male and female what they're both most fully meant to be. From the beginning, right, we see that God gave man authority, not the woman. And this distinction was good and was placed, put in place even before the fall. So you can't even say the fall distorted it. This is the way that God created from the beginning. And so redemption actually helps us to live truer to our God-given differences. I hope that's at least a helpful overview of the, the logic. But what I hope you can see is that this framework of understanding Scripture is not rooted in the Bible. Which, if I can make a side comment really quick, all right? We can just step out of our text for a second. You really should be cautious of any arguments or frameworks that question you, that, help, that make you question your Bible and what your Bible says. If somebody comes to you and tells you, well, you know, that's not really what the Bible says, or like, well, if you understood the cultural happenings of the day, you would actually know that um, what that's saying is actually the opposite of what it says. Be very, very careful, right? Beware. Do not give people a place of authority who cause you to doubt your Bible. It's God's word. It is good. It is unchanging. Let's look at our verse again, though. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Opponents of what? Of traditional, the interpretation of Scripture. What they want it to mean is that we're all equal without distinctions. Right? But it, where does it actually say that? Where does it say in this passage that we're equal without distinctions? Look at it. There is no passage that says that. It says there is neither male and female. Is Paul trying to destroy every distinction out there? Is Paul saying that there is no such thing as a Jew, no such thing as a Greek, no such thing as a slave, no such thing as a master, a free? No, we see from all Scripture that Paul still gives responsibilities to each one. All right? He's not destroying every distinction. And when it says that we are one in Christ Jesus, okay, what does it mean to be one? One, lexically speaking, refers to being together, all right? Refers to being together rather than being the same. It does not denote equality. It denotes togetherness. It emphasizes unity, not likeness. Okay, and this is not different than Ephesians 5, not that different from Ephesians 5, all right? Ephesians 5, when it talks about the responsibilities and the roles of husbands and wives, and they're different, and we can see that, what does it say? It says... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. All right? No one who's trying to be faithful to interpreting Scripture would say that Scripture gives no different responsibilities from Ephesians 5. And so now, don't turn to Galatians 3 and say, well, because we're one, that means we're the same. No, we can be one in our differences. 
We'll see what it means here in a second. But you, in fact, you could actually argue that because this passage emphasizes unity, it reinforces the distinctions that God has created. Right? How can you be united if there are no differences? How can you be united if you're all the same? There wouldn't be any need for unity if you're all the same. But God brings different people together in Christ. So, quickly overview. I hope you can see just the cursory reading of Galatians 3.28. When you try to make it seem like there are no distinctions, it fails three tests, right? The actual words of the verse do not support that reading of Scripture. We've seen that. The immediate context, verse 27, reminds us Paul is talking about our standing before God. He's not talking about our social standing. He's talking about our standing before God. So the immediate context and the context... Uh, proves that it's not a faithful reading of Scripture. And number three, as we look at the rest of Scripture, we see that it does not hold up to what the rest of Scripture says, right? Scripture does not contradict itself. When Paul still gives responsibilities to husbands and wives, to masters, to slaves, you know, even to Jews and Greeks, to how they were supposed to act, he does not contradict himself. So now we have to step aside maybe again for a second and let me ask you a question for your heart. Why is this such a big deal in our world? Have you thought about this? Why is this such a big thing in the church? Why is this interpretation so appealing to us? Why is this error so pervasive in the church? Not all of you are going to hear that and say, well, good thing this is not an issue for me, right? And I say, yes, it is. I want you to see you're not above temptation to dis disregard these God-given distinctions. Okay, you might say, well, you're talking to a lot to husbands and wives. I'm a single person. This applies to you too. Okay, you can live with distinctions as a single man and as a single woman. And you can apply those as you get ready for marriage. But how do I know this is true even in our church? Okay, a lot of us would affirm all the things that I've said so far. But how do I know it's true in our church? The sad reality, right, is that a lot of our marriages function where the woman is in charge. It's not outwardly, maybe, or you wouldn't say that, but functionally speaking, husbands are too scared to get in conflict with their wives. We're lazy. You're lazy, husbands. You're selfish. And so you would rather just live at fake peace and let the wife from the house. And for the woman, right? A woman hates that she has to be under authority to a lazy husband. And so she manipulates him to do what she ultimately thinks is best. This is in our church. Okay? So if this is you, and if you're getting, married, getting ready for marriage, and you think this could be a danger for me, the call for you is to repent. Repent of the ways in which you have neglected to live according to the responsibilities that God has assigned to your sex. And then start undoing this. Start undoing the damage that you have caused. If you don't think this is you, ask others. You might not be able to see it clearly. Ask for help. But be humble. Okay? Be humble and recognize this is an area that plagues the whole church. But if you're humble and you recognize that you're weak, there's so much help for you in Christ. Amen? God helps those who are weak and recognize that they need him.
But if you're proud, be scared. Your marriage depends on it. Your future marriages depend on it. Your family depends on it. So work hard at it now. Work hard at maintaining these distinctions and live as God called you to live and you will reap the benefits of a sweet marriage 10 years from now. Amen? That's my hope for our church. The reality is we hate this because we just hate being under any authority, right? We hate when people tell us what to do. Teenagers, do you hate when your parents tell you what to do? Employees, do you hate when your bosses tell you what to do? Especially if you think they're wrong. We just hate being told what to do. We hate when there's any limitations on what we can do. We hate when someone tells us, oh no, you can't do this, or yes, you should do this. We want to be our own authority. We want to be our own God. We want to be able to set our own standards. And so if submitting is convenient for us or our authorities and we agree with them, and when they're agreeable to us, we'll go along with it. We'll make a show of it. But if submitting actually costs you, then you'll either reject that authority or, more than likely, most commonly, you'll excuse your rebellion. Say, well, I didn't have to do that because if only you knew, right? We just hate having people tell us what to do. And now the reality is that God has given us things that we have to do as a man and as a woman. But church, don't be like the young rich ruler. Right? He claimed that he would follow God and do anything to follow Jesus. Right? I've done everything, Jesus. What else do I have to do? And then when Jesus actually gives him a specific command and tells him a very specific thing what you need to do, you need to go and sell your possessions. Okay, this is, Jesus did not tell this to everybody, but he told this to this man, a very specific command for this very specific person. What did he do when Jesus gave him a very specific and practical command? He went away sorrowful. When your obedience to God actually means that you practically have to change how you live and you are called to live under that, don't go away sorrowful. You will joyfully experience the blessings of God as you trust him, as you live practically before him. So the issue at hand is that God has put specific demands on you, on your sex, okay? You don't just get to live as a gender-neutral Christian. Men are to obey God as men. Women are to obey God as women. This is beautiful in God's sight. And these are practical things, okay? All ordained by God. Don't hate how God made you. So instead of despising your responsibilities, rejoice, okay? Rejoice in the fact that God made you a man. Rejoice in the fact that God made you a woman. You get to... Show God's glory in the way that you behave as a man and as a woman. Okay, be glad that that's how God made you. Love the things that are proper to your sex, right? Men, love things that are tough. God made you to be tough. So be tough, act tough, all right? Men, act manly because God made you to be a man. So rejoice that God made that distinction. God made male and female. Live as a male. Women, live womanly. Okay, live womanly. That is a beautiful thing in the sight of God. Men and women, stand against the culture and show off your sex before others. And this, again, looks practical. That means 
look like your sex too. All right? Look like a man and look like a woman. This affects very specific things like how you dress. All right? Your dress is affected. It impacts the length of your hair. Look like a man. Look like a woman. It impacts your facial hair. All right? Some of you men can grow some facial hair. All right? I know I can't grow great facial hair, but sometimes you just have to look like a man. Okay, and this is not everything, all right? This is not everything. I'm not trying to make it seem like this is everything, but this matters. This really is important. And how do we know this? The world knows this is important. Okay, what is every person who claims to be transgender, what do they try to do so desperately? They try to change what they look like, right? They know that this matters because they want to look, you want to reject how God made them so badly that they want to change everything about the look and look however they think that they should look, right? Our looks actually do matter because they glorify God in the way that he made us. Amen? Be proud of how God made you, all right? Back to our text again. Okay, so we talked about what this text does not mean so far, all right? So far I've just given you, this is what this text does not mean. Let's finally get to what does this text actually mean? If our text doesn't mean that everyone's equal in every way, what does it mean? Well, Luther says it this way. In a matter of salvation, rank, learning, righteousness, influence count for nothing. Okay, when it comes to your salvation, your rank, your learning, your righteousness, your influence count for nothing. In other words, the promises of God, those who are in Christ, are for his children. That's regardless of your status. That's regardless of your condition. If you have trusted in Christ as your hope, it doesn't matter what your condition is, right? It doesn't matter if you're a Greek or a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a female. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or free. You are accepted as a son, as a daughter. And this means, right, that God can bring anybody into his family, anyone, regardless of where they're at right now, regardless of how far away they may be. For those of you who have wayward children especially, right, this should be such a hope for you. God can bring anyone into his family, regardless of their condition. We trust in him, not in what we can do. So no one is accepted on anything that they can do. They don't, are not accepted into Christ's family based on anything that they are or any personal qualities, all right? All that matters is that they stand in Christ. All that matters for you this morning, you should ask yourself, have I stood with Christ? Have I trusted in him as my Savior? Because that is the biggest question you can ask yourself. Here's a really helpful illustration I heard. I hope it's helpful to you, but this is really helpful to me as I kind of got my head around this passage, right? So um, imagine that you're in an amusement park. And this amusement park typically has, you know, as it's normal, different prices for different people. So, so, you know, most of the time, kids will get in for cheaper, and then you have adults get for them for the full price, and sometimes you have senior citizens go at a discounted rate. But this amusement park, because they are not very busy on Wednesdays, and they just want to attract people to come on Wednesdays because no one comes to the amusement park, they say, you know what, on Wednesday, everyone gets in, $5, doesn't matter, just $5, everyone, admission, come and enjoy our park. And so if you have a family, right, that comes, a family of uh, children, parents, grandparents, you know, they come up to the booth and they're getting their tickets. 
And, you know, usually it's less for the child, more for the adult, a little bit less for the senior citizen. And the grandpa goes, hey, don't forget, I'm a senior citizen, right? So don't forget about my discount. And the guy at the booth might say, oh, actually, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And in the context, that's right. It doesn't matter. Now, is this guy at the booth being rude and saying, hey, man, I don't really care about your experience. I don't care about what you've done. I don't care about your age. None of that matters to me. No, he's not saying that, right? But in the proper context, he's saying, when it comes to the admission today, it does not matter what your age is. You all get in for the same price. He can be truthful in saying it doesn't matter because these distinctions don't matter for this context. So for matters of justification, for your justification and how you're made right with God, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ. That's what Paul is trying to emphasize here. All receive the same everlasting inheritance without regard. Which, by the way, is a complete blow to those who are trying to live by the law. Right? If you are here and you're still trying to, like, live as if you can earn God's favor by what you do, this is a complete blow to that. Because when you put on Christ, nothing else matters. Right? Your standing with Christ is not affected by anything else. Your circumstances, your achievements, none of that will change your standing before God. You rest secure in your Father's arms because Christ is all that matters. So church, you are all one in Christ. Verse 28 says, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are united to Christ, your head, but also you're also united to one another. Okay, you are all one. And this has very real implications, real implications to us and to Paul's audience. So let me give you four implications of this text for your life today four implications. Implication number one, you're all one, and yet you will all have different lots in life. You're all one, but yet remember, God has made these distinctions, and these distinctions are good. Look at the three categories Paul uses, right? They're very key distinctions. They really affect who you are and what you do in that society, in that culture. All of them impacted how you live. Specifically, I want to look at the slave and free distinction right? If you were a slave and you were a free man, your lives looked very differently. Your responsibilities were very, very differently. And this reminds us that God has created the world and has given levels of authority and hierarchy, right? There will be in this world, there will be bosses and there will be servants. There will be those who are rich and there will be those who are poor. Is one more worthy of God's grace than another? No, but they matter for how you live. Your lot and where God has put you actually affects how you are to follow God. You are not devoid of your context. As a Christian, you live where God has put you. So whatever lot God has given you in your life will be different than that of the person sitting next to you. Be faithful where God has placed you. Don't be so concerned about, well, if only I had this life only had his life or this or that or whatever he or she has then i would be faithful god hasn't called you to that god has called you to be faithful in whatever lot he has given you so don't covet your neighbor's lot don't despise the lot has given you 
but trust God and be faithful where God has put you because you will all have different lots in life and yet you can all be one. Okay, implication number two, you are all one for his glory. You are all one for God's glory. The diversity in God's kingdom actually reflects the fullness of God's glory. The fact that there's differences in the church is actually a beautiful thing in the sight of God. That means that if you flatten all distinctions, if you make everybody just the same, you actually miss God in the process. All right, hear this. I've been thinking about this this week. I think it's kind of funny. But if you embrace this, you will actually be more about diversity than the city of Bloomington is. All right? If you embrace this, you will be more for diversity than even the city of Bloomington is, who claims to be all about diversity. But how? What do I mean? Right? I'm not saying that we're just here to fill a quota to feel better about ourselves. What I mean is that we are actually more honest about the fact that God made distinctions, and these distinctions matter. We acknowledge that there are actual differences between people, and we appreciate them as God-given, as they reflect God. The world may only go as far as to say that, well, different people do different things. They have different practices. That's just what they know. But they'll never acknowledge that different people actually have differences in person. Okay, that's too scary to acknowledge for their worldview. But as Christians, we're not afraid of reality, right? We're not afraid of what is true. We glorify God in our distinctions. And so our differences actually reflect God's character. When you live how God made you differently than your neighbor, you magnify God's attributes. All right, that's very clear in marriage. The union of a man and a woman is a glorious picture of God's love for the church. But it's even evident in slaves and master relationships, right? Who is the ideal authority? Who's the ideal master? God, he's the king of kings. We learn about God as we learn about authority and as we learn about rule. And yet... Who's the ideal servant? Who is the ideal servant but Christ Jesus, right? Who came to serve, to lay his, down, uh, his life down for the sheep. As you live where God has placed you, you actually glorify God in all of his attributes. And one more example that can help us brings us to implication number three. You are all one together, okay? You're all one together. Because another way that God is glorified is in the differences in our church. And you belong to one body. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that there are, we all have different gifts. We all have different gifts. We all have different skills. And these gifts are given to us so that we can serve the church and ultimately bring glory to God. Remember, all are one. Not just individually we're one with Christ. That is true. But you're all together one in Christ. So we're all together God is uniting all believers together under Christ. So that means that you should give yourself to the church, to God's people. You should care for the needs of your fellow members as if they were your own needs. Right? And I was just talking to some of the students here this morning. It is so important that you find a church. Find a church and commit yourself to a church and love a church. Become a member of that church. Because it is in the church that God has designed for your differences to actually come together in service and in love to glorify God. You're all one together. You belong to one another. Do not live in isolation as a Christian. And number four, you're all one, so there's no room for superiority. 
you're one, so there's no room for superiority. The distinction between, Jew, between Jews and Gentiles is really helpful here. Okay, what did the Jews think? They thought that they were superior because they had the law. They looked down on others who were not circumcised. They considered themselves to be the true people of God because of their lineage. But what did they do? They made wrong distinctions. The truth is that if you are one with Christ, one in Christ, you don't live as if you're better than your fellow church members. All right? All of you, if you're honest, all of you have somebody in the church that you look at it, you think of, and you say, well, you know, at least I'm, my life is more together than that person's. Or you think, well, he may not be as mature as me, but, you know, God will help him. Church, this looking down on others is not proper to a Christian who has been united in Christ with one another. And so, do not create distinctions where God has not made them. In Christ... Regardless of your condition, regardless of your achievements, regardless of how high and mature and mighty and knowledgeable you think you are, you are one in Christ. You are in the same standing as the brother that you judge. There is no superiority, that word is hard, in God's kingdom. So therefore, don't judge each other too quickly and harshly. All right? Don't judge your bosses too quickly, employees, all right? We should all have all the sympathy in the world with weakness when you consider how God has dealt with you. Wives, you're not superior to your husband. All right? Don't wait until he makes a persuasive argument or until he learns as much about the Bible as you do before you have to follow his lead. Is that a condition? To what God has called you to do? No. Your responsibility is to follow your husband. God will help him. Your responsibility is to follow, not look for loopholes. And husbands, do not neglect your responsibility and your authority in the home. If you neglect your authority, you will make it hard for your wife. And this is on you. Both of you, men and women, you have to work hard at fulfilling your responsibilities. You don't get to just wait until the other person gets their act together before you start doing your part. What that says is, I am more important. He needs to start doing it before I will do anything. Don't wait. You are not superior to your spouse. But for all of us, how do you do that? How do you set standards to make you superior to others, all right? What qualities do you look for in others that make you think that, oh, they are more mature, they're worthy of my time, of my fellowship? What standards do you set? And be careful that you don't look down on others and dismiss the weak too quickly because you are weak. And lastly, don't put yourself down. Don't put yourself down. If you are one in Christ, then you have a responsibility too. You have a responsibility to love and serve God's church. You can actually contribute in the church. You don't get to look at others as superior and then have them carry all the weight. You actually say, by God's grace, he has given me his spirit, and so I get to now play a part in the kingdom of God, and I get to play a role in serving and loving the church. And you discern and you ask, how can I do that? And you don't just wait for somebody to tell you. You don't just wait for somebody else to do that. You take responsibility because you are one in Christ. 
So as we finish here this morning, let's just finish with verse 29. Hopefully this ties it all together. And it reads, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This verse reminds us that it's all about Christ. Ultimately, we stand here, we stand in our manhood and womanhood because of Christ. Who are the sons of promise? The Jews would say, we are because we're the sons of Abraham by birth. But Paul says, no, it's all about Jesus. In Christ, we are Abraham's offspring. Doesn't depend on who you are, what you've done, your condition. It all depends on Christ. It all depends on Jesus and what he has done for you. So what do you think of Jesus? Church, I've given you a lot, and you have a lot to do. If you feel overwhelmed by all the responsibilities that God has called you to, as you do that, don't lose sight of him. Your inheritance in God's kingdom does not depend on your perfection, so be comforted in that. Your inheritance depends on Christ's perfection. So rest in that. And yet, let that give you comfort and encouragement to press on. Put on Christ. Be faithful in your lot, whatever your lot may be, that God may be glorified as you look forward to the day when you will stand in glory with him and all the saints in everlasting joy. Let us pray. Most gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, Lord, it's, you have made us one with you through Jesus Christ. And so we exalt him this morning as the only one that is worthy of praise. Father, thank you that you have united us in all of our differences, in all of our conditions, Lord, and you have allowed us to be faithful. Lord, now we can walk humbly before you, acknowledging you in every way. Would you help us to live wherever we may be, whether we are single, whether we're married, whether we're in school, whether we're out of school, whether we're at work, whether we're looking for work, whether there's sickness or health, whether we're in a sweet season or a hard season, Lord, would you help us to be faithful, Lord, in whatever lot you've given us? And would you help us to exalt you as the one who's in control of all things and who's working all of these things for our good? Thank you that these distinctions you've made are good and are honoring to you. Father, and so help us to be one, as you are one, for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.